Welcome to The Hobbyist. My name is Piers Cooper, and I'm here to talk to you about hobbies, my own and yours. Hello, I'm Piers, once again in your ears to bring you The Hobbyist. After the trailer, this is the first proper episode. Later this episode, I'll be bringing you an interview with Adam Wilkins about his hobby, and I'll be taking you through how my hobbies are progressing, but first, a quick explanation about this podcast. I have too many hobbies, and I've just added one more to the pile by starting this podcast. Most of my hobbies have a creative side, a few are exercise-related, and the rest just simple pastimes. The problem is that I don't have time for them all. I tend to concentrate on one or two at a time and then just as suddenly go off them and switch to others instead. So why start a podcast? Well, I felt the creative urge and I've been pondering a podcast for a while. Indeed, the idea and name of this podcast has been bouncing around the largely empty spaces in my head since lockdown one in the UK, or March 2020, as others may know it. The catalyst for doing this now is my constant need for novelty in my life, the urge to do something new. The strange sensation of pressure in my head caused by incipient boredom has triggered the creation of this podcast as its outlet. This sort of thing happens all too often. I feel that if I talk about my hobby problem and share it with you, it won't be so much of an issue. I can continue to acquire new hobbies as an excuse to keep this podcast running. You can tell that might end badly, so that's where you come in. By interviewing you about your hobbies in the section called The Ten Things, I can learn about hobbies I don't necessarily already have and can evaluate them before I decide if I want to try them. There will be an awful lot of temptation coming my way, and this is why The Ten Things uses a set of basic questions that examines the ups and downs of a hobby so you, the listeners, can also get an idea if this is something you'd like to try for yourself. Anyway, that's the basis of this podcast. It'll evolve over time, and I'm sure you'll have a say in how this takes shape. Right, on to the first proper section of today's podcast. Today's Hobby This season's main hobbies are chess, lino cut printing, and some woodwork. Today I'm going to tell you about what I'm up to in one of the great passions of my life over the last six or seven years, woodworking. Last weekend, I built a nest box for starlings. About a month ago, I found some instructions on the RSPB website for this nest box, but I couldn't find the mental space to commit to building it. I've put a link in the show notes, though by now it might be a little late to make one as the breeding season is almost upon us. The materials list and cuts looked very simple, and in my mind it was the work of about 15 minutes to knock this box up and then find somewhere to hang it. In the end, I was both right and wrong. My brother had given me some oak planks. They were off-cuts from when he fitted new windowsills in his home. They'd languished for a while because as off-cuts they were blemished or knotty, and I'd found enough nice wood to build an oak footstool in October, but then the cold, dark weather had prevented me from thinking about any use for the remainder. My main concern was having sufficient length of planks to meet the plans, and after careful measuring and trimming of about three inches off one end, I could make the shapes required by the plans. I normally work with machine tools, but I also enjoy hand tools and decided the nest box would be made entirely by hand. Some measuring and line drawing later, I was ready. Hand tool working is hard work. 
oak that has sat around indoors hardening in a radiator-heated room is tough to cut, and even with my decent array of handsaws, I was soon starting to perspire in near-freezing temperatures. I'd not done any serious woodwork since October, so had plenty of time to get out of shape. Workshop fitness sounds like something I've made up, but it can be a full-body workout, cutting planks on a low saw bench, planing the resulting edges, and hand-drilling the entrance hole using a brace and expanding bit. As predicted, after about 15 minutes, I'd cut the basic shapes. I offered them up and found the roof section to be a bit short. I'd had to find some more wood because when I cut the first sections, I did so at the wrong line. Out of practice, measure twice, cut once, remember that? Anyway, in a panic, I thought I'd cut the roof section up to create the new box base, but no. I'd not checked the plans to see the width of the boards being used. This was further complicated by my using significantly thicker boards than the plans allowed for. Some maths and head-scratching later, I'd marked up the parts to trim them down again, but this was slow, fiddly work. Thankfully, I'd not yet drilled the hole, or I'd have been planing the sides of the faceplates down individually. Anyway, eventually, after about two hours, I had a box worth putting together, and I screwed it into one piece and then looked at how to waterproof the join of the roof to the main box. The plans suggested inner tube rubber or similar, but I found a roll of damp course in the back of the workshop left by previous owners. This stuff is stiffer, but definitely going to last. To secure it, I needed drawing pins. Thumbtacks to those over in America. So I visited the corner shop, we are in lockdown after all, to no avail. Eventually, I rang my mother, who lives about a five-minute walk away, and she provided me with a small quantity of brightly coloured pins in a plastic bag. The box then sat, waiting for me to hang it on a wall. I should mention I have two main fears, drowning and heights. The box should be put up at three metres or higher, said the instructions. Not on your nelly, said I. I have a stout, two-section, six-metre ladder in my workshop. It's sat there since I moved in in 2014 because I very quickly realised I hate ladders more than I hate heights. Eventually, a few days later, I invited my brother round, we are in a bubble, and he passed the tools up to me as I hung the box below my bedroom window, legs like jelly the whole time. It's been snowing and below freezing since I put the box up, so it has no residence yet, but I'm hopeful I'll have some starlings move in soon. In my old house in Essex, they nested in the eaves, and every spring the calls of the chicks and the clatter of the parents arriving with food acted as my alarm clock, and I miss that cacophony. I hope it will return to my life very soon. That's the update over. Right, on to today's interview. The 10 Things. So today's guest is Adam Wilkins. Welcome, Adam. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. So today we're going to be talking about the 10 things, and the 10 things are all about your hobby. So let's start with 10. What is your hobby? My hobby is motorsport, but not the sort of motorsport you'd see on the telly, like Formula One or even British touring cars, but club-level motorsport that um, amateurs can get involved in. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about that. What sort of cars do you use in club-level motorsport? Uh, You can use almost anything, really. There are all sorts of uh, different classes, so... You can take an ordinary road car, like a you know, something something interesting, like a BMW Compact, uh, for example. There's a single make series for those, or you can have a car that's specifically designed and built for motorsport, like a, a single seater. 
so yeah a whole a whole variety of different cars really are are used for club level motorsport at all different budgets really so what sort of races did you use to compete in on a regular basis i used to compete in a single make championship for tiger pit cars a tiger is similar to a caterham seven for the benefit of listeners um who may not know what a caterham seven is could you give some kind of description of the car please (laughs) a caterham seven is i suppose it's probably the most basic form of sports car you can imagine so it is a very small lightweight two-seater it doesn't have doors it has a very basic roof sometimes but not always they don't even always have a windscreen and it has a four-cylinder engine at the front driving the rear wheels so typically up to about a two-litre engine and yeah it's it's a very lightweight sports car that that's really intended for motorsport and and fast road use. Nine. When did you start doing motorsport? I started in 2005, which was the year the, the um, Single Make Tiger series was launched. And my history with, with Tiger goes back quite a long way because my dad built one when I was a child, which he still has. And when the, when the Single Make series was launched, that was um, an opportunity really to get involved in motorsport in a reasonably low-cost way, or as, as low-cost as, as motorsport can be, really. Eight. So what first drew you into doing this? I've always always had a love of cars and a love of driving. I never thought I'd actually go racing. I, I remember, I have a distinct memory of being about five years old and being with my family at Lytton Hill watching, watching some club-level motor racing and my, my nan saying, uh, we'll, we'll be watching Adam do this one day. And I remember then thinking, that's, that's never going to happen. And I've, I've thought about that memory a lot, particularly when racing at Lytton Hill ever since. So, yeah, I've always, always been into cars, always been into driving. And, and racing is, is probably the ultimate expression of, of performance driving, really. You, you can drive in a way that you can't on the road and in a way that you can't even do on, on non-competitive track days. So from what you describe, would you say that you grew up in a, a very car household? I would, yeah. My, yeah, my, um, my love of cars comes from my dad, really. As I say, he, he built a Tiger kit car when I was a child. And yeah, I've, I've always, been, always been around cars and been going to car shows and uh, race meetings for as long as I can remember. You mentioned that you used to do it consistently for a period and then that's become a bit more sporadic. What were the reasons behind that? Uh, cost, really. I, I mentioned earlier it was um, a, a cheap form of motorsport, but even cheap forms of motorsport are quite expensive because of um, all the equipment and and everything else that goes along with it. Even if even if the race entry fees are not that much on their own, there's there's an awful lot of other expense and time that has to go into it. And it got to a stage where uh, I was moving out of home, and time and money were were not quite as available as they had been. Uh, when I was still living at home. Seven. So what do you most enjoy about motorsport? I think it's the fact that there, there are little moments in every race that um, that just stick in your memory for a long time. I can remember um, uh, you know, for, for sort of a week after a race meeting, reliving moments of races over and over again in my head in sort of idle moments staring out the window. And I still remember them now. So it, it's just... When, you, when you're in the car and you're competing against somebody else and all that matters is getting in front of them and all that matters to them is staying in front of you, it, it's, a, it's a complete escape from, from real life in a way that's really difficult to achieve these days. And there's just no distractions. It's you in the car 
and whoever you're battling against. And it's, it's a sort of a form of pure escapism that, um, that, that's really hard to achieve elsewhere these days. So uh, could you perhaps describe for us some of those little moments that have stuck with you? Yeah, I can. I can remember my, yeah, the fir- first race I ever did at Brands Hatch in 2005. There's, uh, there's a complex of corners at Brands Hatch. Druids, which is a hairpin, followed by uh, Graham Hill Bend. The first one's the right-hand corner, the second one's a left-hand corner. And I can remember spectating at Brands Hatch years before I ever raced there. And you'd, you'd watch people go around the outside. So the slow, the slow line to go around the outside of somebody at Druids would then give you the inside line at um, Graham Hill Bend. And I managed to, to do that move in my first race. And um, yeah, the, the feeling of, of putting into practice something you've, you've watched and, and never dreamed that you'd do yourself really sticks with you. Yeah, another one is, uh, I remember at um, Snetterton, which has some, some long straights, battling against another Tiger Avon that was um, of, of similar performance to mine. And we were probably doing 100 miles an hour along the back straight. And I was, I was behind and uh, I was just slipstreaming the car in front. And at 100 miles an hour, I just remember just gently tapping the nose of my car into the back of his. And you think, God, you, know, you, just, you can't drive like that anywhere else. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just, it, it just makes you feel alive. It's, it's, it's fantastic. That sounds amazing. Six. Moving on from that then, what do you least like about motorsport? Um, I would say for a, a race meeting, for a 20-minute race, there's, uh, there's, a, there's an awful lot of preparation that goes into that. So not just travelling to and from the circuit, but also preparing the car, hanging around on the day in between, uh, in between the races. There's a, for 20 minutes of fun, you do spend an awful lot of time travelling, hanging around, not doing a lot. But then for those 20 minutes, it's, it's, it's suddenly all worth it. Five. Talk me through a typical session. Uh, so on the day, you, you turn, up, turn up in the morning. So the first thing you have to do, well, the first thing you probably do is take your car off the trailer. But um, the, first, <laughs> <laughs> the first thing you have to do is uh, go and sign on where your licence is checked and um, they make sure that uh, you know, you, you're, you're qualified to enter the race. Once that's done, you then have to go through scrutineering where the car and your equipment, such as pressure helmet, overalls, etc., are, are up to scratch. So overalls have a finite life and pressure helmets do too. And then the car is checked for various um, safety aspects just to make sure it's safe, safe to go out and race. And all that happens quite in quite quick succession in the morning. So you're busy for all of that, particularly if the scrutineers find something that they're not happy with. So you have to rush off, get the car sorted, bring it back for them to check again and say, you're good to go. And then there will be a qualifying session. So you'll go out for a timed session, which um, decides the grid positions. And then there's the race itself, which as I say, is, is normally about 20 minutes for a club race. It's either on a time limit or a number of laps so 20 minutes or 10 laps for example some races are longer and then sometimes you get a second race on the same day and the the grid positions for that are often decided by the finishing result from the first race but yeah so you you, on, on a typical race day you'll have 20 minutes of qualifying two 20 minute races 
and a bit of sitting around in between unless the car breaks of course and then if it does you're, you're kept busy between races i can imagine four how do you find time for this hobby uh, when i was younger it was it was quite easy really these days not so much um which is probably another reason why i haven't done so much racing since my last full season which was 2009 i think i've done about four or five races in the years since then but i i think it's you know, you, you, there's a calendar of, of, of events. You don't have to do all of them in a year unless you're going for a championship win, which which I never was really. And I think because, you, you know, you just set the dates in the calendar and um, you sort of, it, it's like a deadline. It's like working to a deadline and um, you, you make the time and, and you sort of tell yourself you have to be there. What sort of time commitment then is needed to take this hobby seriously? It depends what you mean by seriously. For some people seriously means competing for a championship win and if you're doing that then really your your commitment is is based on your the commitment level of your next competitor so you know if they're if they're testing the car between races and turning up at venues for a day of testing before the race itself you you can very easily start spending an awful lot of time chasing a championship win the way I approached it was was that I was doing it for fun I wanted to on the day I'd want to beat whoever I was equivalent to in on, in pace but I was never that never that fussed about going for a championship win because uh, as well as the time commitment that's also quite expensive because the more you spend the faster your car will go so yeah so so to take it seriously I think if you if you're taking it very seriously you are going to have to set aside not only the time for the race meetings, but but to um, test at the circuits you're racing at and also spend more time on car preparation. Yeah, I, I think you could easily be occupied every every weekend of, you know, from the spring through to the autumn if you were if you're taking it that seriously. If you're doing it more, more for fun in the way that I did then possibly 10, 10 weekends a year or, or, or less, really. You, you, can, you can pick and choose how, how much time you want to spend at it, really. So it sounds like a serious commitment then for those who are dedicated it to is. it. It is, yeah. And so for you, being more of a hobbyist, the, the reason we're here, you can pick and choose and, and get the time balance right for you. Three. So what are the barriers to entry then? There are quite a lot and anyone who's starting out in racing probably needs to be prepared for this. So you will need, you'll need a race license. So you will need to go and pass what's called an ARDS test, which is the Association of Racing Drivers something. The S isn't really something. Um, so you will have to, yeah, you'll have to go and get a, a race license, which involves a practical test on a circuit where your driving is assessed and a written exam in a classroom. And then there's quite a lot of equipment that you'll need as well. So the car itself needs to be prepared with a number of safety items. So a roll cage, a plumbed in fire extinguisher, um, battery cutoff switches, that sort of thing. Whether you're adapting a road car for race use or whether you're building a, a car specifically for racing, it will need it will need those features. And then you, you will also need uh, equipment for yourself. So. You need a crash helmet that's up to a certain spec, so not a crash helmet that you'd use on a motorcycle on the road, for example. Mm. You'll need overalls, boots, uh, a hands device, which is something that connects to your crash helmet to stop whiplash injuries. So, yeah, quite a bit of equipment. 
uh, you'll also need to, it's unlikely, it's possible, but it's unlikely that you'll drive the race car to and from events because if you do, if you crash it or it breaks, you can't get home. So you'll need a trailer to, to uh, take it to race circuits. You'll need a car, car or van that's capable of towing a trailer. And if you passed your driving test after 1997, you'll also have to pass a trailer test so that you're legally allowed to tow a trailer on the road. So there is a lot, a lot that's required to get yourself and all your kit together in order to go for your first race. What would you say would be the approximate cost of just putting yourself up, getting yourself ready to race? And then what are the rough costs of, say, buying a car and then having a race? The uh, safety equipment for yourself, so crash helmet, overalls, et cetera, et cetera, I think you would need to spend £700 or more. You can, you can spend an awful lot more on crash helmets and things than you need to if you are shopping on a budget but i think probably about 700 pounds would would get you you kitted out as a driver you would also the, the car again varies there's there you, you can actually just buy a car that's that's ready to race because at the end of the season people give up or move on to something else uh you know different form of racing or something else altogether so you can often buy a race ready car that's up to scratch for depending on the formula, sort of £5,000 upwards. And then you will also need to join, before you can enter a race, you'll need to join the motor club that runs the race series or championship, which is not that much. That's depending on the club. That's about, that's less than £100 for the whole year. Right. But then you'll also have to pay your race entry fee, which varies from circuit to circuit and from race organiser to race organiser, but they can be around £300 a meeting. One thing I ought to ask about is insurance. Insurance is optional uh, for rate, as far as racing goes. So you can, you can insure your car for accident damage. I actually never, I never did and never have, but insurance policies are available in case you damage your car. If you don't have insurance, then it's up to you. You know, you, you take your own risk if the car gets damaged and indeed if somebody else damages your car. So unlike in a, in a road accident, if someone else crashes into your car, you, you claim on their insurance. When you're racing, that isn't the case. If someone crashes into your car, it's still down to you to fix it because the, the tacit agreement is that um, you're racing and you know what the risks are. It's also worth having some um, personal injury cover as well, which is possible and not that expensive. Uh, and that's, I would say that's probably more worthwhile than, than insuring the car. Two. OK, so if somebody wants to get involved, what information is there out there? What sort of clubs or associations could they go to? Uh, there's a number of clubs. Really, you probably want to choose what sort of car you want to race first. And from there, you find out which clubs cater for, the, for that particular car. The two obvious clubs that run uh, club level motorsport are the 750 Motor Club, who have a number of formula. And the, another obvious one is um, the BARC. So, yeah, if you, if you start with those two, you'll probably find a championship or race series that, that suits the sort of car that you want to race. And then you, you actually have to join that club before you can, you can enter any of their championships. One. Now, your final challenge today, then, you've got 30 seconds. Sell me your hobby. Your time starts now. 
Okay, well, the odds might be stacked against me in selling you a hobby that is so time-consuming uh, and expensive, but I think the biggest thing I can show to demonstrate that, that it's worthwhile is that um, every weekend in the summer, there are hundreds of people involved in club-level motorsport, all of whom think the effort and expense is worthwhile. Uh, and it's all because of those moments that I described earlier that stick in your mind forever and the sort of escapism, escapism and thrill of, of doing so. Um, was that the end? Your time is up. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Adam Wilkins, thank you very much for sharing with us your uh, enthusiasm and passion for club-level motorsport. Uh, it's clearly something that you care about a great deal and have a great deal of knowledge about, and I wish you all the success for the future. Thank you very much. Conclusion. What have we learned from today's interview? Motorsport can be a rewarding and exciting pastime. It's expensive, not for the faint-hearted, but can provide memories that will last a lifetime. It's not for everybody, certainly, but for those who have some spark of interest, I hope that Adam's knowledge and enthusiasm has now prompted you to at least take your idle thoughts a little further. Is it for me? Well, I did give it a go about 13 to 14 years ago. I competed in a couple of races, but then work and the expense of running the car led me to curtail my interest. It certainly left me with lasting memories. I can recall my races at Snetterton as if they were yesterday, including spinning out just after the bomb hole in a very wet race. If you have disposable income, there are far worse ways you could be spending your money. My conclusion is that this is one to try. Next episode, we're going to be looking at a much more peaceful hobby. I won't say too much now, but if you like getting your hands dirty, this one may be for you. While I have your attention, please subscribe to this podcast on the app of your choice. I'd be grateful if you could give this podcast a rating, favourable please, and a review, as it helps enormously in getting this podcast in front of people's eyes. Don't forget, I want to hear from you about your hobbies, so if you'd be willing to be interviewed about them, please drop me a line at the email address in the show notes. So join me next episode for The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. Goodbye! Thank you.